Hi, and welcome to Tech News This Week. I'm your host, Tech Tiger Editorial News Director, Anton Gonsalves. On today's show, we'll discuss the difficulties uh, many of you experience when moving from a software-defined WAN to a secure access service edge, and we'll tell you how to ease the pain. Also, we'll talk about uh, the pros and cons of AI and security, and we'll look at the state of AI regulations and how the states are tackling the issue without the help of Congress. Uh, first up is SD-WAN. Many companies are in transition from a software-defined WAN to a secure access service edge or SASE. A new survey by Enterprise Management Associates found many enterprises struggling with the transition. The numbers speak for themselves. 11% of the companies surveyed, or only 11% of the companies surveyed, said the transition was very easy, while 30% described it as, as painful. Here to tell us why is Seamus McGillicuddy, the author of the EMA report released this week. Seamus, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Anton. Okay, uh, listen, before, we, uh, before I start, uh, full disclosure, Seamus and I worked together for a while as reporters for Tech Target before he left uh, to join EMA. Uh, nevertheless, uh, this study is worthy of examination. So uh, the first thing we should do is set the stage, Seamus. Uh, why are so many companies uh, migrating or planning to migrate from SD-WAN uh, to SASE? What's the motivator? Well, there's a lot of hype, so they think it's the next big thing to buy. But um, it's it's about the, f the fact that um, you know security remains an ongoing challenge. It's it's always hard um, integrating SD WAN with uh, secure service edge solutions uh, allows you to um, build a network where you can deliver. Uh, network and cybersecurity capabilities closer to your corporate sites and your end users. That's that's one piece of it. Like because um, you know it, a lot of SD WAN implementations started with some security at the edge where the the SD WAN edge devices were deployed, but then a lot of security was applied through the data center where the the head end devices of an SD WAN first generation SD-WAN uh, implementation was. So like all the traffic had to go to the data center uh, where it would get scanned for uh, security uh, risk and uh, malware and whatever, and then it would go on to its destination, right? So that wasn't an efficient approach to security because it added latency uh, mm -hmm. to uh, the network. And so you know, performance is not, would be an ongoing issue. Um, so when you, when you move to a SASE solution, you have like all these points of, the, the SASE solution providers have all these points of presence globally deployed that may be closer to the, the origin of your traffic. Um, mm -hmm. And so it reduces latency because you go to that pop instead of your centralized data center, and then you go on to your destination. Also, most enterprises today are moving towards multi-cloud at this point, well past 75% uh, are, are probably there by now. Like I've talked to people all the time who are like, oh yeah, we've been AWS forever, but our DevOps team wants me to start 
building a network that incorporates Azure, Google, whatever now it's, it's constantly expanding. So with that, like you have, you don't have central hubs on your network anymore. You don't have a core. You like all your applications are in multiple clouds and multiple regions and multiple data centers all over the world. You can't have like a central place to send people's traffic for security screening. So you mm-hmm. gotta, you gotta have like these, these, these consistently designed pops mm-hmm. that SASE offers um, where no matter That's where cool. you are and what mm-hmm. pop you go to, it's secure. So, right. so security is security is is critical here for the use of SASE, and as you pointed out, with the multi-cloud. So, um, you know, what makes the move to SASE though uh, difficult? What are the roadblocks that companies are are running up against? Well, um, about forty percent of companies today are multi-vendor SD WAN. Um, so, if you're going to integrate, if you're going to evolve SD WAN into SASE, um, ideally you want your SD-WAN solution to be kind of uniform, right? So that like you just plug it into whatever SASE direction you're going, whether that's adding SASE capabilities from your chosen SD-WAN vendor, because most uh, enterprise class SD-WAN vendors at this point are offering um, the secure access service edge stuff and POPs. Um, or you integrate your SD-WAN solution with a third-party secure access service solution um, that brings the SASE pops to the picture. Now, if you have two SD-WAN vendors, that's two projects. Um, some people tell me they got three or more SD-WAN vendors. That's too much complexity. Um, and why do they have multiple vendors? Well, maybe they got multiple business units are making their own decisions and they've been told, well, we need SDN to be SASE now. And they, and the NetOps te- and their network engineering team says, well, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, like we have two different SDN vendors or three different SDN vendors. Cause you let your business, you let the business units make their own decisions on that. Um, mm-hmm. Like I talked to, you, you might, you might even have like, um, uh, uh, well, you got mergers and acquisitions too, as well. Cause like I, I've yeah. talked to someone the other day who said that he's, his company is constantly swallowing up other companies and all those companies have their own SD-WAN vendors, you know? And mm-hmm. um, actually like this week I, I talked to a, um, a very big company with, uh, all over the world. They are everywhere. They have 900 branches. Um, they do, they have factories in every country, in every continent, uh, distribution centers, and he said he's standardized on one SD-WAN vendor, but he wanted it as a managed service, um, right. which is very common. But mm-hmm. he couldn't find a managed service provider that could deliver it globally across all of his regions. So he has eight MSPs managing one vendor. So each, each, each MSP is, has like a, an SD-WAN controller that's right. managing maybe like 10, 15, 20% of his global operations. So then if he wants to go from SD-WAN to SASE, he's got to work with all eight of those MSPs to get it done. Sure. So the complexity is is, is mind-boggling in some, in some cases. And then there's also, uh, I think you listed in the study, you know, people who have uh, done it themselves with SD-WAN. Uh, that's that's a, um, a roadblock. That's a difficulty. Poor, uh, poor WAN visit observability. So um, how do you, um, how do you, uh, what do you recommend that companies do to deal with these multiple, uh, multiple problems and roadblocks? 
Yeah. Well, you need one unified SD-WAN solution. If you're going to turn your SD-WAN into a SASE, it can't be like five or six, two, three, four, five, six solutions that you're going to migrate to, to SASE. You need, you, you need, you need a, uni, a unified foundation on the SD-WAN level. Now, the reason why I did this research is because every time I hear people talk about SASE, um, a lot of times... It's, they make it sound like the SD-WAN piece of SASE is just a feature that you turn on with a flick of a switch. And it just, you're like, okay, let's now we'll move on from the network layer to the security layer. You know, no, no, not, n never. Like, e there's a reason why, like, I don't know, it's like 65% of enterprises tell us that they no longer do DIY SD-WAN. Um, is because it's complex to set up all the tunnels across your WAN underlay. It's hard to find people that can that can manage this thing. Like it's hard to hire people that know the technology. It's hard to build a, a to integrate it into your security architecture. Um, and so you need to deploy a one managed service, a managed SD WAN solution. Um, find a, a man a, a provider. Maybe it's like an AT&T or Verizon. Maybe it's like an MSP, whoever that can deliver your SUN as a global service. Then you need to um, make sure that you have good visibility into that because um, the nature of your traffic patterns change uh, when you go from just SD-WAN to SASE because now you have all these pops that are in between your end users and applications, right? And between like your site-to-site -site connections, um, these sassy pops. And so you need to make sure that you have the ability to monitor that. So if you see, if like a sassy pop goes down and your managed service provider uh, doesn't have good visibility into it, you can say, oh yeah, I'm having an issue with this sassy pop. Let's route this traffic. You know, I'm going to call up my MSP and say, we got to route this traffic to this other sassy pop on the West coast. Cause the one in Chicago's like down for some reason, or, Hey, um, my ISP in Miami is, is having problems, uh, reaching this sassy pop. Can we, can we fail over to the MPLS network that I'm that I usually reserve for this, you know, so that you can make sure that that your your SASE solution performs properly. And, it, and it's not just like keeping an eye on things in day two operations perspective. You, you're probably going to want that good observability up front when you're designing the network to make sure that you're not like um, that you're you're not like making bad traffic engineering decisions. Exactly. Um, you're not operating uh, blindly. I mean, you also uh, recommended that. Uh, uh, that companies uh, have don't just hand over management and monitoring to the MSP that yeah. you share the responsibility, which is important. Basically, they have to they have to be involved, you know. Yep. Uh, yeah. Day two, day two, like you, you see like 60, 70 percent of enterprises out, um, consuming SD-WAN and, and uh, by extension, SASE as a managed service, you'd think, well, they're going to outsource operations. They don't. The majority, the vast majority of enterprises want a hybrid operating model where, yes, their, uh, their SD-WAN or SASE provider is monitoring things with the native SD-WAN visibility capabilities of the platform. But, but you want to see what's happening too, because, you know, it's, it's your, you're the one responsible for supporting the business. I was talking to someone the other day who said that like, um, he, um, 
he had a, a connection to a factory go down and uh, his, his, his managed SD-WAN provider in that region where the factory was, was not proactively aware of it. He was aware of it because, you know, he was getting user complaints. He had IT on site go and check his, his edge SD-WAN devices to see if there was something wrong with them. Nothing was wrong with them. So then he used a third-party monitoring tool to just look at the nature of traffic going from that factory into the, the WAN. And he noticed that something had changed with how his ISP for that factory um, had was routing traffic from his factory to uh, AWS. And it had completely um, wiped out uh, connectivity to app the applications that the factory needed access to. So he was able to go to his SD-WAN provider and his ISP and say, this is the problem. Routing change was made we need you to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the use of monitoring tools is a whole other uh, element of this that unfortunately we don't have time to, uh, to jump in on, but, uh, but anyway, thanks. Uh, thanks for, for coming on the show, Seamus. Uh, you know, it's always fun to talk uh, shop with you. I really appreciate yeah. you. You too, Anton. Hopefully I'll All see right. you in person sometime soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, security pros are overwhelmed with data, so it's not unusual for them to miss reports on software vulnerabilities, uh, leaving a company open to attack until the problem is discovered and patched. Well, guess what? Surprise, AI is coming to the rescue. Uh, security vendors are adding artificial intelligence to their software to help customers uh, sort through vast amounts of data. Uh, several automated AI security offerings use ChatGPT to help with threat detection. This week, Recorded Future uh, added to its software an AI engine uh, based on the company's threat intelligence and private data. Uh, here to discuss the uh, differences in the two approaches is Tech Target editorial security reporter Ariel Waldman. Welcome, Ariel. Thanks, Anton. So let's start with uh, how AI could help security pros uh, deal with data overload. Yeah. Uh, what are proponents saying? Security pros, like you said, they have an overwhelming amount of data to sort through from a variety of sources. Another problem is a cyber skill shortage. There's not enough people to even sort through all of that data. Um, so it seems like OpenAI GPT in general is the next step in helping companies gather threat intelligence and help sort of offset the cyber skill shortage. The automated and real-time functions of AI are really important, especially in gathering threat intelligence. It can also be difficult for enterprises to understand how much or even if a certain threat, threat will affect them. So AI can maybe add some specific specificity to the, those searches and finding out how that threat will affect them. Um, another area, threat actors and cyber criminals are becoming increasingly sophisticated and innovative. So it's difficult to keep up with current and emerging trends. Security pros can use AI to help gather adversary group intelligence, which is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and then another AI, Another area can further assist in is vulnerability patch management, which is a big problem for enterprises. As you said, there's so many flaws and threat actors are exploiting them at increasing speeds. 
So it can help them to know which flaws may be impacting them and how to prioritize those flaws. Yeah, I, I, the vulnerability management piece is certainly uh, is a, a real uh, painful area for for security pros. The the the, the Chat GPT is a you know is a subset of this open AI large language model. Uh, so uh, recorded uh, uh, future, you know, trains the open AI model using its own private data. Uh, what's the is there's a I would assume there's an advantage to that, right? Less chance of uh, of errors and getting un un uh, surprising results. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, some I mean concerns with um, like Chat GPT, for instance, was that around security and accuracy of the information it provided um, can sometimes make up answers if it doesn't know something for sure. And um, yeah, it depends what data set it's been trained on and everything. So recorded future, they used OpenAI's GPT model specifically. Um, the chat GPT is a different type um, and not what recorded future incorporated into their model. Theirs uses the OpenAI's GPT and the language skills. Um, but recorded future is known for its threat intelligence. So that is a big advantage. Uh, the model was trained on more than 40,000 analyst notes from the company's threat research division. It also includes op uh, information from open, the open web, dark web forums, technical indicators. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it's very vast um, and uh, what companies can find out. Okay, um, so in, in those, um, in those uh, organizations, they use chat GPT. Uh, these you described them as several automated AI security offerings. I mean, are they are they sufficiently reliable? Do they claim to be reliable, or what's what's the status with with, with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the hope is that they'd be reliable, but I think it really depends what what data they're trained on, um, how current that is, um, the accuracy mm -hmm. of it, um, and just um, knowing having a fact base, knowing it's fact base and being sure about that. I think that's a big problem, um, okay. a big concern. Do you have any, uh, do you have any sense of what, uh, how uh, security pros uh, are looking at AI today? I think one aspect is um, feedback from Recorded Future, at least. They found it as a time-saving tool. Um, right. Executives are inundated with questions, security questions all the time. And if they try to, you know, ask an analyst uh, their opinion, that could take days or hours. And this, using these functions, it could, it generates a summary or analysis um, within minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's just yeah, help with that and, yeah. Okay. So all right, Ariel. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on the show. I, I, I really appreciate the time, and uh, and thanks for your report. Thanks for having me. All right, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Okay, AI also has the potential to improve business operations, right? driving efficiencies and profitability. But it has flaws, as we just discussed. Uh, that can lead to trouble. You know, in California, people in favor of AI regulations point to examples of the harm it has done in healthcare, housing, and hiring. Uh, Congress has yet to take up uh, legislation focusing on AI's potential harm, uh, but that doesn't mean nothing is happening. 
uh, here to discuss the, uh, the state of AI regulation is Tech Targetorial's government uh, reporter, McKinsey Holland. Welcome, McKinsey. Hi, Anton. Thanks for having me. Sure. All right. So most of the regulatory <clears throat> action is happening uh, in the states, uh, you know, places like California, Connecticut, Illinois, and Texas. You know, uh, they're, uh, what are they doing? Uh, what is their approach to, uh, to provide protection uh, when AI, you know, makes the decisions that affect and sometimes bad decisions affect people's lives and their livelihoods? Sure. Yeah. The legislation introduced in these states really aims to apply certain protections for consumers around the use of AI um, around automated decision tools. Colorado, for example, issued draft rules in February uh, to prohibit life insurance companies from using external data uh, like credit scores, social media habits, educational background, um, which they consider discriminatory data in their AI models. So those companies would have to undergo a rigorous examination of the data that they use in their AI models to impact the company's decisions. And it's absolutely true that the momentum on AI regulation is happening in the states, similar to what we've seen with data privacy. California is a leading example of that. Um, while the federal government has yet to advance legislation around data privacy or AI, states are working on this. Though the White House this week did issue a request for comment around AI accountability. So that's a measure that they've taken um, outside of last year. They uh, issued a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. But other than providing comments or seeking guidance, they really haven't made any uh, advancement towards AI legislation. Towards the legislation, right? And the states, uh, and the states do vary, right? In the sense that some states are um, the regulations they're looking at would include government use of AI and commercial, but then some are just focused on on government also, right? Uh, why that? that patchwork? Sure. So um, by focusing it on, I think kind of focusing on the impact of these tools and on, especially when it's governments uh, making decisions or using these tools for, you know, housing decisions or uh, employment opportunities, like it's, you know, particularly education. impactful in that sense and education. Sure. And so, you know, by focusing it in, in the sense on, you know, where the impact is, uh, then they can really focus the legislation on the harms caused by this technology. Yeah. I mean, I could see over time when eventually you have this patchwork of legislation. Uh, I remember the way back in the, uh, the days when they were talking about taxing a sales tax for the, uh, for the internet, for, you know, for Amazon was involved in that heavily. Uh, you ended up with states taxing and different tax laws, you know. Uh, so this is the same same situation. We end up with this patchwork, and I guess for the for business, uh, any ideas? What is uh, anybody talk? Anybody you talked about uh, discuss the impact on business and how they're going to be able to, to navigate this? Sure, and it's going to be you know similar to what businesses have had to do with data privacy laws currently. Uh, just kind of being aware of what you know, because there's only a handful of states that have enacted these laws so far. So I think ideally businesses are waiting for the federal government to catch up and implement a comprehensive approach. You know, not only mm -hmm. to data privacy but to artificial intelligence 
um, because as more and more states do adopt their own regulations, it will make it more difficult for businesses to adhere to this patchwork system of laws and regulations. So I think it's a kind of wait and see, you know, up, you know, really make sure you do try to comply uh, with the regulations that states have, but hope, hoping for a more overarching law um, to kind of bring that all together. Eventually, sure. And in the meantime, you know, which is a whole other uh, side of this that we, we don't have time to get to, but there's Europe. You know, Europe is doing their own thing. So that's if you're yep. an international company, uh, that's going to be something else to navigate. Sure. Uh, Europe's very far ahead on the AI uh, regulation with their AI Act. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, McKinsey, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for your reporting. Thank you, Anton. Yeah. All right. That wraps up this week's show. Thanks for watching and enjoy the weekend. I'll see you next week.